Hi everyone, we hope you're enjoying our new season on Bee Magic. Before we get started on today's episode, we want to let you know about a special event we have coming up. The first ever Elixir Wizards Conference is this June 16th and 17th. All online, two afternoons, a mix of talks, panels, and of course, the hallway track. As a podcast listener, you can get a discounted ticket by going to smr.tl slash conf-podcast. We'll put that link in the show notes. Hope to see you then. Welcome to Elixir Wizards, a podcast brought to you by Smart Logic, a custom web and mobile development shop based in Baltimore. My name is Justice Eben, and I'll be your host today. I'm joined by my solar co-host, Sunday Mint. See what I did there, Sunday? Hello. Yes, I did. <laughs> and my pioneering producer, Eric Ostrich. How are you, Eric? Doing good. This season's theme is Beam Magic, and today we're joined by none other than Francesco Cesarini. How are you, sir? Hi, uh, thank you for having me. All well. Are you glad that I didn't try to use the Italian accent on your name there? Very, very relieved. <laughs> I've, been, I've been out of Italy for over 30 years. And when well, people hear me speak, you know, they kind of react saying, hey, you don't have an Italian accent. What's wrong here? Going back, you know, when I left Italy, I used to have a really strong American accent when I spoke English. And then, yeah, picked up the Swedish accent when I spent 10 years in Sweden. And now, yeah, British accent, you know, been in the UK for 20 years and it's messed up, but yeah, no one, no one can actually place, place me to Italy. So you're in the UK right now. Are you in London or somewhere else? We're in London. Yeah. I've been based in London for a while. Rock and roll. That's super cool. We wanted to get to know you kind of from a background perspective. Where did you get into programming? How did you first break into the field? So I started coding on a Commodore VIC-20 when I was 12 years old, 10, 12 years old, uh, upgraded to Commodore 64. And then in high school, we were doing Pascal on Apple IIEs. And that's what got me passionate about the subject. When I moved to Sweden, I moved there to study and ended up taking a degree in computer science. So yeah, that, 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 that was the route. So it started with Turtle Graphics on the Commodore VIC-20 over to BASIC and yeah, and ended up with Erlang in uni. How did you pick the computer science field at that age? You kind of follow your interests and you know things you're passionate about. And there were two things. One was economics, the other was computer science. And having moved to Sweden, economics required a um, certain proficiency in Swedish, which I didn't have. And so, yeah, I, I picked computer science instead. And then I, I ended up mixing the two together you know, by, by becoming an entrepreneur. I want to hear about how you became an entrepreneur, but I also want to hear first about your first job out of college, how you got it, what it was. My first job, it was an internship. I'd come across this obscure programming language in universities, one of our assignments. It was called Erlang. And it was, yeah, the only place you could use it was Ericsson, long before it had been released as open source. So I, I basically picked up the phone. I cold called Joe Armstrong and asked him if he had an internship for me. Two weeks later, I visited them at the computer science lab. It was actually an interview, and I got an offer, and the rest is history. So clearly that interview or that friendly visit turned interview went well. Yeah, he offered me a thesis project. After six months at the computer science lab, it was amazing. It was there with Mike, Joe, Robert, Klaus Wikström, who invented Nisia, the Darling Distribution, Bjarne Decker and a lot of really, really bright minds. From there, I joined Ericsson's training and consulting arm. 
you know, Erling was, you know, they were beginning to pick up Erling in quite a few key projects within Ericsson. So uh, both, you know, wireless and fixed broadband, as well as packet switching projects. So you know, they needed a department which would help these different units come up to speed with Erlang and basically start projects with 100 plus developers, as that's how they used to run projects back in the days. And that's where I started my actual career, you know, after having graduated. This is an internship at Ericsson. It was started with an internship with Joe Armstrong at Ericsson, ended up in a job with the training and consulting arm. Okay. And how long were you there? When did you decide to move on? I was there for about four years. But you know, we're looking at moving abroad, you know, having an experience you're moving abroad for a while. And every time I got a job offer abroad, uh, my partner either you know, couldn't get a visa or uh, it was some rural village in the middle of Ireland where you know, she couldn't get a job. So when she got a job offer uh, to move to the UK and, and, and move to London, I actually got a phone call. I was in Montreal. Say, hey, you know, I got offered a job. You know, they're, they're moving my whole department to, to, to London. And, you know, uh, other option is redundancy. And I go, you crazy? Take it. This was, I think, a Friday. Yeah, I flew back to Stockholm on the weekend and on Monday handed in my notice. So, uh, and we moved to London uh, a couple of months later. How does that timeline interact with the story of the founding Erlang Solutions? So I was actually planning on taking a few months off uh, in between jobs, settling into London. I never took a time off between uni and my first job, you know, no gap year or anything like that. So my plan was, let's go in, let's find a house. Uh, I needed to get my driver's license. Let me get my driver's license. Let me, I needed to finish off the writing of my thesis project. So let me do that. You know, so I had all of these things I, I wanted to catch up on. So we, we basically moved, flew over to London on a uh, Saturday and uh, in November. And on Monday, I don't know how, they'd managed to get my, my partner's phone number. And they were, you know, she was getting cryptic voicemails on her work voicemail saying, hey, this is Patrick, call me, we need you. And, and so basically they were looking for me. Yeah, they managed to get hold of me on the Wednesday saying, oh, Francesco, we need you in this project, it's urgent. And so I ended up agreeing. And within two weeks, I had free consultancy offers and, and a permanent job offer, even though I'd not gone out and looked for any of it. And so I thought, okay, there's a business case to set up my own company, which I ended up doing. So it was completely by accident. I wasn't planning it, but it happened that way. Who was it that was calling you, contacting your wife to find you? It was just people who knew of you? It was Ericsson UK. It was Ericsson Ireland. Ericsson projects all over because at the time it was there was one pocket in the UK and that was T-Mobile UK. So let me get this straight: you quit your job at Ericsson, you fly to London, you immediately get consulting contract offers from Ericsson, and this is how you start Erlang Solutions. Yes. Do you have any like founding partners at Erlang Solutions? People that came on early? No. So it was only me for the first two and a half, three years. It was only me. And then 2003, I started getting subcontractors on board. 2004, the first summer interns, the first office. 2005, I got, a, I got a partner who joined me on the business side, and he helped me to expand to about 25, 30 people. With him, we opened the Stockholm office. We opened the Krakow office. And he stayed on until around 2010 when he sold his share of the company to the Trifor Group. And, and then yeah, we, we got a, another CEO on board. And he helped us expand to where we are today. 
So I think that this career path of like leaving a company and starting your own thing with that company as your first client is actually more common than we hear. So I'm really glad that you're telling this story. I was wondering if you could kind of zoom in on those years of transition between you being a solopreneur, you hiring your first subcontractors, and then you hiring your first full-time employees. What were the sort of transition steps that forced you to grow the company? I was never forced, but there were so many opportunities. So initially, it was only me. I had one customer, which would then allow me about once a month to take on training gigs, consultants, short-term consultancies, code reviews. I started developing my own training material, which ended up opening a lot of other doors. And you start developing a contact network. You start knowing everyone in the space. And so you know, you're sitting on a customer and they're looking for more people. You basically ask your friends to join you on a subcontracting basis. And I think 2003, I started teaching at the IT University of Gothenburg, which was Chalmers. Got asked by a friend, Thomas Ars, to come in and teach uh, the undergrads, uh, the second year students, Erlang. And uh, it was really interesting. Erlang was the second language they were learning in an IT and management program. So you know, Java was the first one, and then Erlang was the second one. And there I came across some really bright students and offered them a summer internship. And, and so this was 2003, 2004, you know, they came over you know, for the summer. We got an office, we helped them find a home. By the time the students graduated in 2005, they came over, they did their thesis project with us. And at the time, Sweden was still recovering from the IT crash and the dot-com crash. Is it had hit the telcos really, really badly. So Ericsson had shedded about 50% of its workforce in conjunction with, with the IT crash of 2000, 2001. Weren't they also acquired around this point? No, they weren't acquired, but they spun off their uh, mobile headset. They had a foray into mobile phones and you know, were, were market leaders, but you know, they, they kind of struggled to stay on top of the market. You know, After all, you know, who would want games on their phone and, uh, you know, who would want a color screen or even colorful phones? You know, no, a phone has to be black and uh, it was adapted to you know, the male businessman. The, the actual algorithms were optimized for a middle-aged male voice because you know, they were the only users who could, yeah, who would be using mobile phones. And so you know, they lost market shares to Nokia. So around 2005, you've got a handful of people in an office together. We're talking about maybe three, four, five people, something like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I want to know what kind of work you're working on. And then you, you mentioned that you've hired a business partner and this business partner helped you scale from like three, four, five people to like 30, 40 people. Okay. So what I'm curious about is, can you just take us through that story and especially like the key elements that the business partner brought that allowed you to scale an order of magnitude in just a few years? And maybe also a little bit about your mindset at the time. Like, were you hoping to scale? Did you like to stay at the size you were at? That's also very interesting. So definitely hoping to scale and definitely hoping to kind of create a product company uh, more than a services company. You learn with time, it's in, almost impossible to, to actually make money off a programming language. It's a programming language, especially that, you know, there was a huge transition at the time is something which people expect and expect free of charge. And, and, and this is very similar to tooling. It's something you know, people will not pay for. And so yeah, it was very hard to kind of you know, capitalize on that and make money off that. And so yeah, we, we focused very much on services. So training, consulting, software development. At the time, I think we were called, initially when it was only me, it was called Cesarini Consulting Limited. 
And I think that the first lesson I learned in, in marketing is never, ever name the company after the founder, not a services company, because everyone will be asking for that Cesarini guy you know, to come in and deliver your training course or do the consultancy. And so yeah, it makes it hard to, to expand. So that's when I did my second marketing mistake, which was we rebranded to airline training and consulting. And my lesson learned there was never name a company after the services you provide, because right after you've named it, you're going to start adding new services. And indeed, probably two months after the rebranding, we started providing in-house systems development on behalf of our customers. You know, a few years later, we you know, rebranded again, and we then you know, renamed the company Airline Solutions which again, never name a company after the programming language because there's so many emotions associated with it and it makes it really then hard to scale beyond you know, that programming language. Luckily, you know, Erlang has now become an ecosystem of languages. I mean, there are probably 35 languages running on the beam. I've stopped being surprised when I interview people and I, I realize, oh, we've got this flavored Erlang in production or we've got Erlu in production. So yeah, they're, they're all of these dialects. It's not just Erlang or Elixir, but there are a lot of different dialects which are being used and have been used in production out there. I don't think I knew there was that many. That's really cool. I thought there were like five or six. <laughs> Over 35. Every few weeks, a new one pops up. Wow. Wow. How many folks do you have over at Erlang Solutions now, nowadays? past 100 mark. We are recruiting. So if you are looking for a job with Erlang and Elixir and the whole ecosystem, you know, please do reach out. We've got a distributed Americas team. And that was one of the offices I helped set up. And I spent a lot of time you know, traveling to and from America and figure out where do we put an office? Where do we put an office? And after probably three years of researching and you know, building uh, my contact network and, and, and getting clients, we realized that America is so big that you know, having an office in any one single location doesn't really make sense. What you want is a distributed team. And then we've got offices in uh, Budapest, uh, in Hungary, so in Krakow, in Poland, uh, Stockholm, Sweden, and headquarters in London. We're looking at having about 25 to 30 you know, developers per office, which I think is, is a good size, which each office can handle and trying to give each office as much independence as possible to operate and run on their own. Those are such fun locations, Justice. We've, we've got to talk about like a elixir around the world travel as soon as we can do that again. Just like hop over to hang out with all... Because we've talked to people from all over at this point and it's so cool to think about. Yeah. One thing I do try to do when I travel is visit the local agency. When I was down in Sao Paulo, I visited Platform Attack and in this community, people are so hospitable. You can just show up at the office and be like, hey, I'm an elixir developer and Want to say hi? <laughs> yeah, want to say hi. We've now become a completely distributed company. And that was a big change, which initially was forced upon us last year. But more than anything, more than being forced upon us, it was being forced upon our customers. And many of them actually went in and accepted and realized that, hey, guess what? You're working remotely and, and providing services remotely works really, really well. And so as a result of it, you know, I think, you know, we took the step and, you know, became a fully distributed company and that's helped us as well, you know, kind of recruit talent. So yeah, you will find offices, but they won't be as crowded as they used to be. I think it's going to be a mixture of, yeah, of working remotely slash, you know, coming into the office whenever people feel like doing it. And it's, it's worked really, really well. 
It's really funny too, because the way that we interact now, you know, these conferences that we're, we're attending are virtual and, and you obviously know you're organizing a ton of them. And it's just so interesting to see like all the people that you can come across now, you're not limited by location anymore. Like I've been attending Elixir meetups in, I think the Birmingham one is the one I go to the most often, but SmartLogic folks have been talking at the Denver one. I've had people from Brazil coming to my DC Elixir meetup. And there's just, there are no boundaries and it's great. The first meetup we did after lockdown, yeah, let's try yeah, let, let's try to get all of the London crew back together and on a Zoom call and have a few presentations. And again, I got blown away, around 200 people registered for that meetup. In the chat, I went in and let us know where you're from, you know, during the talk, you know, and as you're joining. And, you know, hi from South Africa, hi from Mauritius, hi from Kenya, hi from India, you know, hi people all across Europe, all the way into Brazil, uh, you know, stretching out to uh, San Francisco, across the States, South America and San Francisco. It was people were you know, joining from all over. And yeah, it, it's, it's removed the boundaries and it's really opened up the ecosystem to everyone. It, it's been wonderful. And Tomorrow, I'm actually keynoting at AlexiaConf Africa. I wish I could be there in person. Africa is a very, very warm place in my heart. But hey, virtual is better than nothing. Yeah, a little bit of context for the audience. We're recording this on May 6th. So by the time this comes out, AlexiaConf Africa will have been a month past. I think everyone in the community is super duper excited that there is an AlexiaConf Africa. Is Tracy Pendo organizing? Yes, yes. And we're definitely trying to have her on the show. So look out for that. You do a lot of work in the conference space. I want to hazard a guess and say that Codebeam is the biggest thing in terms of conferences that you're responsible for, Francisco. Is that right? Well, the biggest conferences are actually CodeMesh and Lambda Days. So they're more functional programming conferences intersecting with distributed systems. So we're looking at basically getting the word of Erling and Elixir out to the wider kind of functional programming community, distributed systems community. But yeah, we do it together. Yeah, there's always been an openness towards all programming languages. And and so, yeah, we have the strong belief that we can learn from each other and that together we're stronger. So there's a lot of Scala, Clojure, Haskell, on top of Erlang and Elixir, uh, F-sharp, and uh, quite a few obscure languages as well. This is amazing to discover. First of all, Having emceed ElixirConf America and Lone Star ElixirConf and seen the amount of work the organizers put in, it seems like an overwhelming amount of work just for one conference. You're talking about, it sounds like you're, I mean, you mentioned Lambda Days, Code Mesh, Code Beam, ElixirConf EU. I'd say we probably have six major conferences per year. We used to have what we call light conferences, which were single day, single track uh, events as well. And we were doing five or six of those per year as well. Wow. How big is the team working strictly or specifically on conferences? Because we talked about your growth from like at three to 30. I'm curious about this growth from 30 to 100. And like how much did hosting conferences play a role in that growth curve? The team at its full potential is about six people in total. On every conference, you'll have probably two or three people driving it forward and, and planning on it. You know, it takes months. I mean, we're already planning uh, and signing contracts for 2022 right now. So uh, it's a dream team. You know, they're, they're just passionate about what they do, the impact they're having on the community and, the, and on the ecosystem. So uh, that's really what drives them and, and gives them the energy you know, to, to have 
you know, this many really high quality events every year. Yeah, I was going to uh, sort of snarkily ask when you're going to invite me to MC. But now that I know that you host six, I might as well just, you know, <laughs> go start for gold. Six and, yeah, yeah, go for gold. And then, you know, we can negotiate from there. So anyway, just putting you on the spot. No big deal. The serious question is, how has organizing all these conferences played a role in the late stages of your growth curve? So the reason i think we we uh, we started organizing conferences was again it was we did our first one in 2008 it was the erlang exchange you know we used to have the erlang user conference which was arranged by ericsson and it was very kind of academic in nature it was single track single day you know death by powerpoint types of talks all male line up one or two women in the audience if you're lucky it was uh, those were the days and and what they were doing is they were catering for you know for existing users and, and they weren't really helping expand the user base because all of the talks were all very advanced about very specific libraries and also being single day single track they couldn't expand because that was the venue ericsson had so you know we, we ran our first event in london airline exchange in 2008 over two days three tracks where you know, we had beginners tracks we had a Advanced track, so we we tried to cater both for new new users as well as existing users. And two thousand and nine in March, so right at the height of the financial crisis, we we decided to sail the ship straight into the storm, and we ran an event in uh, Palo Alto, so the first airline factory in Palo Alto. We did that maxing out our private credit cards. You know, it was a, it was a really interesting time. Yeah, because yeah, we didn't have company cards. I mean, it was you know, the financial crisis. It was, uh, there was no money in circulation. So people were buying and selling services, but they just, just weren't being paid. Even our larger customers weren't being paid by their larger customers. So they weren't paying us. But so, so you know, maxing out our private credit cards and you know, getting good credit from the hotel, you know, we, we managed to pull off the first airline factory the first conference we ran on our own in the US and it was fantastic. It was, you know, for the first time, the European airline community met the American airline community. And it was two very different communities solving very, very different problems. You know, you had the speakers in Silicon Valley talking about cloud, talking about deployment at scale. They were talking about billions of users. That was the year WhatsApp was founded. So uh, it was right at that point. And then, you know, you had, you know, the Swedes and the European community, you know, more kind of talking about deploying two servers, doing their products and, you know, very different presentation styles, very different approaches. But despite that, you know, they all got on like a house on fire. It, it was a wonderful experience. That's where everything started. And what these events helped do was build community and increase the adoption, increase, increase the user base. You know, we were able to get out you know, conference talks on, uh, on YouTube, on Vimeo. It was actually on Yahoo Video, if anyone's old enough to remember them. Ask your grandfather. <laughs> All of these use cases and case studies out there, you know, when, when we got SAP to come in and talk about the usage of air, like, you know, Reddit went wild. And it was every time you found a new kind of enterprise company using it, and we managed to get the video out there you saw others go in and look at it. So you know, that really helped expand the community and expand adoption. And, and as we saw the community expand, you know, that helped Airlink Solutions obviously expand. I always used to tell them, please, a company with 10 people is very different from a company with 20. A company with 20 is very different from a company with 40. And you hit a certain limit. We were at around 80 for about 
five years, and we were really struggling to go above it. Not because of lack of work, but it was just organizationally, it was really, really hard. And, and, and I think the way we've addressed it now was you know, to empower all the different offices to, to start growing themselves and taking responsibility you know, for recruitment, for sales, for, yeah, and trying to give them independence. Because again, you're growing a company from 10 to 20 people is easy, but growing it from 80 you know, to 160 is really, really hard. In this growth curve, how did you balance a focus on sales and did recruiting drive sales or did sales drive recruiting? Initially, recruiting drove sales. We became a catalyst for people who were passionate about Erlang and later on Elixir and the ecosystem as a whole. And that's great, but at the same time, you know, it, it also poses challenges because someone who's passionate about Erlang wants everyone to adopt Erlang or even Elixir, for that matter. It's not necessarily a good consultant. What we do is we help, you know, we help our customers with the adoption of the beam. Passion is a very, very important part of it, but you also need you know, persuasion. You also need soft skills. Initially, it was basically we were recruiting really, really smart developers and good people, but not enough consultants. We started changing that about five years ago. And as a result now, it's become much more sales-led because it becomes harder to recruit but also, you know, you get the right people on board who want to go out and help customers. Yeah, obviously, you know, they want to also make sure your Erlang and Elixir spread and that we create a healthy, stable ecosystem. So it was finding that balance and, and that's, you know, the help. So, so in the last five years, I'd say it's being much more sales led. So the question that Justice said that I really wanted to ask you kind of has a story to preface it. So when we were at Codebeam, we were hanging out in the Toucan Lounge afterwards and it took me a little while to put it together, but when you're in a toucan lounge and you're not in the same bubble as other people, you only see their profile pictures. Your profile picture had like a particular angle that made me realize that I had seen you before. Like I'd been working with you for the conference, but I had seen you before and I hadn't quite placed it. And then when I finally did, I had freaked out because it was from this Erlang programming language video that Computerfile put out on YouTube. I watched it early 2020 like right after I had figured all this stuff that you you laid out in this video, I figured all that stuff out for myself. Immediately after I watched this video and said, darn, if I had just watched this video two weeks ago, I would have saved myself so much headache. And for the audience, I was working in Elixir, but it is a video about Erlang. And so my question was just like, you know, that was that was such a helpful video for me. That was like a turning point in my understanding of Elixir. Justice asks this question all the time to people on the on the show. What was a turning point for you where it clicked? And that watching that video for me was that turning point for Elixir. So I was curious as to like how you came up with the examples. How did that opportunity come about? I mean, that was so life changing for me. I just so curious. For 20 years, we were repeating, oh, airlines scalable, uh, airlines uh, fault tolerant but not quite understanding why it was scalable, not understanding why it was full tolerant. Then we'd meet people who you know, give you a rant on Java and say, Airlines great, it solves all these problems. You, you agreed with them you know, because that's what you, you, you'd been saying. But to, to say there was one single event where it clicked, it doesn't. It's ongoing conversations and understanding the theory behind it, which makes you understand why you know, Airlines is scalable, why Airlines is resilient. But you know, it's taken me probably 20 years and formalizing everything I know into two books 
there are some things you just do just because you've always done them that way. But realizing that it's the right way and why it's the right way, you know, takes time. The fact that, you know, 20 years on, we're doing things we used to do, you know, 20 years back, back in the mid nineties is, is proof that, you know, the, you know, when, when the computer science lab invented our lab, they were onto something. Just to sum up, you know, I think what made it hopefully click for you is the fact that, you know, you've got processes, you know, processes don't share memory and they communicate with each other through message passing. And, you know, so that means that, you know, you can, a process can terminate. And if it does, you restart it and you recreate its state. So you focus, you know, the whole let it crash, you know, you focus so much, not so much on, on preventing that crash, which is what you do in all the other programming languages, but you, you focus on making sure that the state you recreate is the correct state because most likely it was a corrupt state which caused it to crash. And then, you know, once you've got that, yeah, okay, you know, then, then you understand the whole supervision yeah, and you understand the approach on creating supervision trees. But what again took me probably 10 years to understand, we did it, we did it in our sleep. But what took me 10 years is that if you have no shared memory, all of a sudden location becomes irrelevant because you could have two processes running on two separate machines in two separate data centers and, you know, again, communicating with each other in a transparent way. And that is the programming model, which gives Elixir its strength, which gives Erlang its strength, and all the other Beam languages their strength. And you mentioned, you know, the people saying to people all the time, fault tolerant, and it's very scalable. Like I definitely, before I really started diving into layers behind how Elixir works and like the fun things it gets from Erlang, I used to say the same things to my friends. They were like, what do you like about Elixir? And I was like, oh, it never really fails in production. You know, I wouldn't really know all of those things. And it's actually funny to me because when they ask me, like, how does that work? I just send them your video. (laughs) I just don't bother. I'm just like, watch this video. It's 10 minutes. It'll explain the letter crash mentality. I don't have to do anything. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And it takes some mental adjustment. Uh, and also, don't use the word "let it crash" with your managers. Uh, just they freak out because yeah, they associate crashes with something bad. All it means is that you're you're taking care of the errors. You, you are taking care of the errors, but you're doing it in a different way. Maybe Justice wants to to talk a little bit about our our fun "let it crash" moment on Friday with the the uh, nerves. <laughs> <laughs> this was a make it crash scenario. Uh, so we were learning how to program Raspberry Pis from Frank Hunleth. And we were curious if we could just make it crash by infinitely generating atoms. Yeah. So we just generated atoms until we ran out of uh, allocation, memory allocation. And And we were just curious, you know, like what would happen? We were watching it live updating in the live view dashboard. And then honestly, the Raspberry Pi just restarted. Just like that. So I think a lot of people when they get to know Erlang for the first time, their first complaint is about the syntax. And I have a feeling that you have some feelings about this that you'd like to share. You're lucky you're on the other side of that line. I'll probably be kicking you under the table here. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I think it was very fashionable to moan about the Erlang syntax, but I think it's just human nature. People have to moan about things. And people moaning about the syntax actually completely missed the point, which is it's, it's, you know, the syntax is just a wrapper around the language. And it's something which, you know, a semicolon here or a full stop there. It's something which, you know, it'll take you one or two days to get over. You actually start looking at the semantics of the language, which, which, which is what's critical. 
you asked me what I think about Elixir. You know, I think you know Jose did an amazing job because using a Ruby-like syntax, he lulls and lures in a lot of Ruby developers with, with this kind of false sense of security, this false sense of familiarity. Oh, look, this looks familiar. It's a Ruby-like syntax. Oh, I understand this. But the truth is, you, know, you still need that huge mental shift when you need to start thinking concurrently. You know, that's the hard part when you need to start thinking in terms of no shared state, when you need to start thinking in terms of supervision trees and restart strategies. So, you know, anyone who says, you know, oh, Erlang is hard to, 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 to learn you know, because of the syntax actually completely misses the point where, you know, the, the hard part is not the syntax, it's a programming model and its approach. And it's just as hard in Elixir as it is in Erlang or any other programming language. So, you know, the learning curve is a steep with both languages. It's just that the, the perception with, with a syntax you're not familiar with might be steeper at first and then and then you level off versus Elixir, which you know might be flat at the beginning, but at the end, you know, it becomes much, much steeper when you start getting into OTP restart strategies and 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 you know doing some of the serious software engineering. Do you have any resources that you like to point people to when they're trying to wrap their head around this new way of thinking? One is the, the Erlang Masterclasses, which we did at the University of Kent. And yeah, we can post a link uh, later. We were lucky. We actually got access to um, professional recorders in the studio. And so it was me, uh, Professor Simon Thompson, and uh, Joe Armstrong. And so together, you know, uh, Simon Thompson did functional, Joe Armstrong did concurrent programming, and then I did OTP. So, you know, and, and you know, follow up with discussion. So there we cover, I think, a lot of, a lot of the high level. I've you know got two books, Erlang Programming and Designing for Scalability with Erlang OTP, which again I, I, I warmly recommend. I've tried to explain that approach in there. It's documenting everything I know. It's documenting the whole approach, and so yeah, if you really want to understand what's under the hood, that's what I really recommend. Specifically, the Programming Erlang book. Both, yeah, because I mean, there's there's I, I go in and explain how you need to think and reason concurrently, how you need to you know think in terms of error handling. And, you know, provide use cases and case studies and anecdotes as to why you know, we do things in a particular way. And should you read programming for Erlang before you read designing for scalability? No, you don't. I think it completely depends on where you are. But I think designing for scalability, it focuses on OTP. And by explaining how OTP works under the hood and the rationale behind it, I show everyone how to use it. The largest audience actually of designing for scalability where Erlang OTP is the, is the Elixir community. Yeah, you don't need Elixir to, to understand what's going on. Now the examples are in Erlang, so you know, but I promise you won't go blind when you when you see the syntax. Yeah. I read Designing for Scalability fairly early on in my learning Elixir and I can confirm I did not go blind. <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> so we want to be respectful of your time. And this has been a tremendous episode. We barely even got to scratch the beam and the magic stuff. So I think that we would love to have you back on the show, but we also want to give you the last, the remaining time to plug anything you want, ask the audience for anything that you want, where people can find you, et cetera. So the floor is yours. Well, A, yeah, we are recruiting. So uh, if you want to work with Erlang, Elixir, the Beam, and you know the ecosystem as a whole, do reach out. So we were posting a link to our job site. I also wanted a plug for the RabbitMQ Summit. So RabbitMQ, I think, is one of the, it, it's a virtual conference. Uh, we're running it in a US time zone, the 13th and 14th of July. ElixirConf EU, we hope, is going to be our first in-person conference of the year. 
the 9th and 10th of September 2021 in Warsaw. Code Beam San Francisco, you know, which we're doing at the Computer History Museum in Mountain View in California, the 4th and 5th of November 2021. So those are you know, the, the events we have planned for, for the rest of the year. Yeah, I think yeah, we, we've been seeing each other on Zoom for too long. So I really hope to meet you in person, either in Warsaw or in uh, Mountain View. Hey, thank you for joining us on Elixir Wizards. Before we close out the show, we'd like to share another quick mini feature interview with you. It's a brief segment where we showcase somebody from the community that's working at a company using Elixir in production. And we'll learn about how they're using Elixir. Hope you enjoy it. Hello, and welcome to the mini feature segment of Elixir Wizards. My name is Alex Hausen, and today we're speaking with Jeffrey Utter, Senior Software Engineer at Bleacher Report. Welcome to the podcast. Hi there. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. So what got you started in Elixir? It's not entirely common, right? How'd you find it? I'm a Ruby expat, like like many of us are, but you know, not all of us. I was working in Ruby and looking for a challenge, particularly something that was better at concurrency, and I was interested in functional languages. So, yeah, Elixir was the kind of natural choice. That's awesome. And how did you find your way into programming? Was it through Ruby? I started in my probably my early teens. I had um, I'd always been interested in like computer and technology and whatnot. And I had a friend whose mother taught computer science at a university. And we had to do like one of those interview someone about a career you might like to have things. And I asked her and she said, go talk to this other fellow who I'm from upstate New York, which is like kind of the boonies. And he lived like in the boonies for the boonies. <laughs> and I, I went out and I, I talked to him and he was like a big open source Linux person in the in the 90s. And I remember the, this one piece of information which stuck with me is he said he'd written some like driver that was used in cash register machines. I think like McDonald's used it or something. They had some kind of issue with it and they called him up to fix it. But he was about to leave town for a conference and he said something like, you know, for like $10,000, I'll take like two hours and look at it and that's it, right? And they had they were kind of stuck. So they had to had to go along with him. I think he fixed it in like a half hour. <laughs> and I was like, okay, so there, there's money in this computer field sometimes. And that, you know, as a 15-year-old or something, that really piqued my interest. Right. Absolutely. And maybe even free McDonald's. <laughs> right. I'm not sure if that was part of the deal, but it could be. So how did you make your way to Bleacher Report then? I've had a few jobs before Bleacher Report. The one prior to, to Bleacher Report was with Communication Service for the Deaf. And we were an Elixir shop there. I was looking for something new. Uh, there's a really small but strong Elixir meetup group in Kansas City that I went to. And I had a friend there who worked for Bleacher Report. And they were hiring. And it yeah, it worked out. That's really interesting about your previous experience. Could you just speak a little bit to that and the, the organization? Communication Service for the Deaf. The company as a whole, they did a lot of services for the deaf community, mainly relay centers and I forget the right names for these things now, but like, it, let's say you're a person that's deaf or hard of hearing and you need to make a phone call. You call a person that either, either you can like type to them or you can sign if you have a video chat thing. Um, and they speak to, they relay your call to a hearing person. That's their main business, but they have a lot of other endeavors that try to help out the community. So we worked on a platform that 
coordinated uh, interpreting services between businesses that needed them, for example, schools or like pharmacies or something like that, and the interpreters that provided them and the people that needed the, the services. So it was kind of like a scheduling billing platform. Wow, that's fascinating and really incredible. I'm based in DC and am around the corner from Gallaudet University, which is an entirely deaf and hard of hearing school. So it's really, really incredible. I know a little bit about Bleacher Report, but could you give just a, a little elevator pitch for us? So Bleacher Report started as primarily a sports news aggregator, right? The idea was you follow your teams and you get the breaking news about your teams and the players and games and whatnot faster than anyone else. That's how we started. I think that was in like 2005. It's been, it's been a while. But now we've kind of expanded to be a platform to help our users share their sports moments together. So that can be anything from breaking news to sharing social things around events, sharing information with your friends, resharing news, or just having some like side chat about a game or something like that. We have live video in the app so you can watch some live events and games and also community component where you can communicate and share ideas, criticism, whatever compliments about your teams, but it's centered around like a certain community. So you can find this, the other people, maybe not your real life friends that have similar interests as you. Cool. So like almost a social network platform of sports communities. Yeah. Yep. I can't say I'm a huge sports fan, but I know that people love sports. Are you a big sports fan? And are employees at Bleacher Report primarily big sports fans? I myself, when I started, was not a huge sports fan, both between the job and my wife's whole family's avid Kansas City Chiefs and KU basketball fans. So now I am too. <laughs> and, and, you know, as I've worked here, I've had more appreciation for the sport and, and like the whole environment around it, the community and everything media that goes into making sports happen. So, so now I'm a little bit more of a fan, but you know, at Bleacher Report, you get the whole range. Some people are, are there for the sports, right? They are sports people. And so they want to go work for a sports company. Other people are engineers or, or whatever the role may be that are there because it's also, it's a great place for that. And you don't have to love sports to, to work for Bleacher Report. That's good to hear. Uh, could you speak a little bit to how you're using Elixir at Bleacher Report? Is that the primary, primary working language right now? Yeah, mostly a large Part of the time we were a Ruby shop initially, and I think Elixir was introduced in about 2015. So we've been doing that for five or six years, but now it powers all of a section of our backend. So all of the news stuff, the social stuff, a lot of the live video stuff is powered by Elixir. The live game stats and and that kind of stuff is is powered by um, some .NET, a part of the company that's a little bit a little bit separate. And also the, the betting portions are over there. But yeah, most of the app backend is is an Elixir. That's awesome. Uh, do you think that there are some specific perks and or challenges to hiring in Elixir, specifically maybe for Bleacher Report? Perks wise, and I think Bleacher Report's probably a, uh, a good example of this. I, I think that in Elixir, you can get pretty far with a small team. It seems like the language empowers people to be productive and, and also build maintainable software that lasts for a long time. Not to say that there's no, no bugs or technical debt or anything like that, but I think you know, compared to other languages I've, I've worked in, it seems like fewer people can get, can get more done. 
And also, if you're sticking to the main path of doing like basic Phoenix applications, you don't need a ton of knowledge about OTP or uh, concurrency or anything like that. I think there's like a, a soft introduction to Elixir where you can be productive. Historically, a lot of the stuff we've done at Bleacher Report has, we haven't done a lot of distributed, haven't need, needed to do a lot of distributed Elixir stuff. And you can get really far just using the basic tools that we get out of Elixir and the Beam and everything. I would absolutely agree with you. I found Elixir kind of by chance. And I think the what you said about kind of feeling empowered in working in it is definitely true. So if you were not a software engineer, would you be a sports star? <laughs> no, not me. I, I try to run a little bit, but that's about, and I'm not terribly good at it. <laughs> there's, there's probably two answers to this question. There's like the, the practical answer and then the not practical <laughs> answer. So the practical answer is I would probably be a musician, a music teacher. I've got a few degrees in music. <laughs> I play the double bass and I, I have a undergrad in music ed, master's in jazz studies and a doctorate in performance. <laughs> and somehow I found my way into programming. I've taught a little bit adjunct at, at universities and whatnot. The other related thing that which I'd like to do would be uh, to build musical instruments, particularly archtop guitar, jazz guitars and mandolins. I have no skill in <laughs> doing such a thing. But uh, my father was a, a nurse, but before that, he was a cabinet maker for many years. Um, and he's actually made some guitars in his retirement. Part of what we like about software engineering is that we get to, to create something that didn't exist. We get to like put some value back into the world. But it'd be nice to do that with something tangible. <laughs> so uh, musical instruments would probably be what I would like to do. Absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, there's still time. <laughs> yep. <laughs> You, another quarantine hobby. <laughs> well, Jeff, thank you so much. It was great to have you on today. And to all of our listeners, if you or your company are using Elixir in an interesting way and want to come on the show for a mini feature, we would love to have you. Reach out to us at podcast at smartlogic.io with your name, your company's name, and how you're using Elixir. That's it for this episode of Elixir Wizards. Thank you again to Francesco Cesarini for joining us today. Elixir Wizards is a Smart Logic production. Today's hosts include myself, Justice Epen, and my co-host, Sunny Mint. Our producer is Eric Ostrich, and our executive producer is Rose Burt. We get production and promotion assistance from Michelle McFadden and Ashley Stotts. Here at Smart Logic, we build custom web and mobile software. We're always looking to take on new projects. We work in Elixir, Rails, React, Kubernetes, and React Native. If you need a piece of custom software hit us up don't forget to like subscribe and leave a review follow at smart logic on twitter for news and episode announcements you can also find us on the elixir wizards discord just head on over to the podcast page to find the link and don't forget to join us again next week for more theme magic